Kevin, I noticed, did you have a, a prayer request about Amanda? Or? Right. Right. Ben? Okay. Let's just pray for Ben right now. Father in heaven, uh, when there's a loss, it's always hard. And when there's a loss of someone this young as Amanda, it's, it's really difficult. And we just ask right now that you would put your blessing and comfort and peace on Ben. Help him in the hardest times. Help him through his anger. Help him through the suffering, Lord. Um, and we just pray for the extended family as well. You bring them comfort. And Lord, we just ask that you would... Um, somehow take this and use it to benefit your kingdom. That uh, souls would come to Christ because of Amanda's life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, as you can see, we're camped out in uh, chapter 9. I've got this for Scott because in a little bit he's going to come and, and read a passage for us. Um, so I've been studying Daniel chapter 9 in, in the last part of it. Um, at face value, it's a, it's a prophecy for Israel. At face value, it's, it's about the, the nation of Israel. But as, as I look into it more, I see that this is an incredible hope for all of us, and it's also a warning this morning. So we're going to dive in here. I just need to give you a little background and set the stage. So first of all, in chapter 1, if you don't remember this, it's about 605 B.C., and Daniel was, I believe, about 15 years old at the time when they were taken captive uh, by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And then Daniel uh, had survived the lion's den by this time already, and by the time we get to chapter 9, he's about... It's about 70 years later, so we believe he's in his 80s, at some, some part of his 80s. We don't know the exact age, so um, that is, is a pretty good guess. He's about 80 years old when he's um, relaying the story of chapter in chapter 9. And then recognizing the sin of Israel at the beginning of chapter 9, Daniel begins to pray. He intercedes in prayer for a nation that he loves. So in Jeremiah, we just want to kind of give you the, the setting around this. In Jeremiah 25, this is kind of the context from which uh, Israel ended up where they were in the first place. It said, The whole land shall be desolate in the horror, and the nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Okay, So we're now at the end of that 70 years. Daniel would have known this. If you remember, Daniel was a student. He was sharp. He got to work for the king, and you didn't do that if you weren't on top of your game. He knew what he was doing. So when Daniel got to the 70 years later, he remembered this prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah made this prophecy about 20 years prior to the captivity. So he would have known this because he would have been taught it. And the backdrop for Jeremiah's prophecy and subsequently the word that we have today in Daniel chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 is Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. You can be thankful I'm not going to read that to you this morning. And 2 Chronicles 36, 21. And what we learn there, if this will go, is their sin that they, the reason they were in captivity was because of their sin of idolatry and also their failure to observe the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest of the land. Um, every seven years they were supposed to let the land uh, be fallow. I grew up in a uh, farming community in Iowa, so this term was familiar to me. Don't know if it's familiar to you. So I just decided I'd look it up for you and put it up there. Fallow simply means this, that they're going to leave the land lay. It's not going to be seeded. It could be plowed or unplowed. 
but it's not supposed to be seeded. They're not supposed to take a harvest off of that land. And that was part of the law. And Israel decided that that just didn't matter because they wanted the grain. They, they decided they had the authority to do what they wanted with the land. Therefore, God allowed them to be taken into captivity. Now, Daniel's prayer goes like this, in short, if you are reading through chapter 9. He prays that God will hear him. He prays that God will forgive Israel. Now, have you ever been in this place? This is, this is the one that made me pause. God, pay attention to me. <laughs> he says, pay attention to my prayer, God. I'm desperate. I know the prophecy of Jeremiah. It's been 70 years. Hear me, God. Hear me, pay attention to me. And act. And don't delay in your answering. Now, what I think the coolest part about this whole passage in Daniel 9, we get to verse 20, and it says, While I was still speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people of Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord God on the holy hill of God, while I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel came. God sent his answer before he could even say amen. I wish it was like that all the time. <laughs> but Daniel was still praying. Gabriel approaches Daniel with God's answer. And that's what we're going to look at today. Scott, I've asked Scott to come up and just read the passage for us this morning. Thank you, Scott. Oh, you can use the mic if you want. Righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and to dis- and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Thank you, Scott. Now, right in those four verses, Gabriel from God tells Daniel, here's the history of Israel. Here's what's going to happen from here on out. He lays out 490 years of what's going to happen to the country that he's been praying for. Okay, so he said there's 70 weeks. These weeks, weeks is a general term of seven periods defined by uh, years. Um, you can check it out. I believe there's a verse in Leviticus chapter 4-ish um, that, that defines that as year. 70 periods of seven years or 490 years divided up into three sections. The first section is uh, seven weeks or 49 years. The second section is 62 weeks or 434 years, and the last is one week being a seven-year period. What is revealed in the text is that the first two sections occur consecutively. 
So there's 483 years that are going to happen uh, that he's speaking of uh, consecutively. Then there's going to be a gap. Um, we're going to get to the insert in your bulletin uh, with the, with the uh, diagram, but you can kind of check that out and follow along as we're going. So uh, this is a lot of information as quickly as I can give it to you. Section 1, uh, seven weeks of 49 years. It began with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, so when um, Cyrus said we're going to rebuild Jerusalem, that's when it needed to be. That's when that 40, first 49 years started, and it ended with its completion. The second set that, by the way, that would have brought great joy to Daniel because that's what he was praying for—a restoration. Why was he so bent on wanting Jerusalem restored? Because consequently, then the temple would be, have been rebuilt and worship would be restored because their worship had been hindered for 70 years. The second section of 62 weeks, or 434 years, began at the end of the rebuilding of, of, of Jerusalem. And it ended, I believe, at Palm Sunday. Now, just to uh, make all things on a level playing field, you need to understand that there is um, a lot of controversy around when things start and when things end around this passage. This is the traditional view. It is the view that I hold. I would, as I always do, encourage you to study these things yourself. There are people who think it ends at the cross. There are people who think that, it, that all of them run consecutively without a gap. I don't believe that as a result of my study. That it's, It seems pretty clear in Daniel 27 that there is a gap there. And the last seven years then, of course, is the... Let's see if this can go. There we go. Is the tribulation. You'll see that on your diagram. The last seven years we have a gap... So what God has just done is he said to Daniel, here's what's going to happen for 483 years. Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt, but it's going to be through a time of trouble. But it's going to be rebuilt. And the king is going to come, but then the king's going to be cut off. But don't worry. Even though things are going to get worse with the coming of the Antichrist, in the end, Jesus wins. So, the 70th week of seven years that we talk about is the tribulation. He also talks about the last three and a half years, which is the great tribulation, meaning things are going to get bad. Now, there, are, I think more importantly in this passage in verse 24 are the six accomplishments or six goals that God is going to prove to have finished by the time the end of the tribulation comes. And we're going to look at each one of those six goals and the implications that they have for us today. The six goals are this, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. You'll see these all in verse 24 if you're following along. To atone for wickedness, some of your Bibles might say iniquity. To bring an everlasting righteousness. Sorry. To bring an everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision of prophecy and to anoint the most holy. We're going to break these down. The first is to finish the transgression. This word is in a general sense. However, because of the context of the passage, I think we need to understand it this way. The transgression is the transgression of Israel, which got them there in the first place. So idolatry and failure to obey the Sabbath of the land. He's going to put an end to those things. It's going to be final. It's going to be complete. The second, I'm putting these three first three together for a reason here. The second is to put an end to sin, literally a revolt, uh, to put an end to revolting against authority. Now, if we've paid attention over the last couple of years, we've heard Ken say this more than once in regards to the four levels of sin. I'm glad we understand that more. 
The first level of sin is what we do. It's our actions. Most of us understand that. Some of the things that we do, we know are wrong, and we call those things sin. But then Jesus came along on the scene, and it became what we think as well. You'll remember he said, if you look at a woman with lust, you committed with uh, adultery with her already in your heart. Sin is not only our actions, but it's what we think. A lot of people will say, well, no, it's no big deal. I didn't do it, but you wanted to in your heart. It's still sin. We're rebelling against this authority of God. We're assuming the third level, assuming the authority um, to determine what is right and wrong. And you see, that's where Israel really was. They decided it didn't matter if they didn't let the land lay. They decided it didn't matter if they broke the first commandment, that they shouldn't have any other God before them. It was just fine with them. God was going to put an end to that. And the last one is self-love. Ultimately, we, when we sin, we choose ourselves over God. He's going to put an end to that. The third one is to atone for wickedness or iniquity. The idea here of atonement is a covering that it's done. I, I want you to understand it this way. I want to go back to sin for just a second. The idea of sin not only is this idea of revolting against authority, but it's a state of alienation from God. Okay? There's a state, they're in a state of alienation from God. And when we sin, we're in that same place. We're in this state of alienation from God. God's going to put an end to this alienation to himself. How is he going to do it? By making an atonement for us. So the progression here is finishing the transgression, putting an end to sin, atoning for iniquity. It's a complete process. He tells Daniel that there is going to be hope for his nation, the nation that he loves. That all of the sin that he's seen that's broken his heart over all of these years is going to be paid for, is going to be gone, is going to be put away. It's going to be covered. So the idea in Daniel 24 is that Israel's transgression will be finished and their opposition to God's authority and their alienation to him will end because God will make Israel one with himself through atonement that he provides himself. Now in case you're thinking already that this is all about Israel and it doesn't apply to me, start making those connections to the reality of our own lives. Whatever the particular sin is in your life right now, He's going to finish it. Whether you're with him or you're not with him. And there's going to come a day when he's going to put an end to sin. It will cease. There will no longer be this opportunity for us to choose ourselves. Even though we may think we have the authority to do what we want and say what is right and wrong, that day is going to come to an end. And we will no longer be alienated toward God if we're in Christ. This one I I love. His goal after, now remember, this is after the 70th week. He's going to bring everlasting righteousness. Understand that right now, we are in a state of being declared righteous, but we are not righteous. Understand the difference. We're not righteous because we still sin. We're not righteous because we still sin. So there's a couple of ideas here. 
One is that with the accomplishment of the first three goals, finishing our transgression, putting an end to sin, and making an atonement for all iniquity, with the accomplishment of those three things, we will be made righteous because there will be no sin. That is what's going to happen in eternity. If you're a believer struggling with any kind of sin and that does not excite you, get the respirator. (laughs) I, I can't wait for that day. The second idea here is that uh, Jesus, who is our righteousness, is going to come and reign forever. Now, there are some people who try to argue that it's either or. I believe that it's a both-and situation. That there is going to come the day where we are going to be made righteous because sin is going to be complete. It's going to be atoned for. It's going to be paid for. It's not going to be anymore. Therefore, we will have, at that point, being made righteous an inability to sin. Thank you, Jesus. And he who is righteousness will reign forever. I can't wait for that day either. (laughs) Come on. There we go. To seal up a vision um, and prophecy. That's that's the next thing. There's two ideas around here, like a Ziploc bag to, to seal it and preserve it to never be used again. Now, when I put a sandwich in a Ziploc bag, I do that to preserve it so that I can eat it. Uh, the idea that I'd like you to have around this is when um, they collected all the evidence, let's say, from the Manson trial. And they, they put it all in these little evidence bags and they sealed it up and they put it away in a warehouse and sealed it inside of a crate and they locked it all up in a room to never be used again. That's the idea here. He is going to seal up vision and prophecy to never be used again. The other idea of the seal is this meaning of authority. Um, I, when a note was sent by a king, he put a, wa- he put a drop of hot wax on it and seal it with the signet of his ring so that the general knew that it was from him. And it brought authority. Now, these are the two ideas around it. I believe it's the first one. I believe it's the first one. This idea of sealing up vision and prophecy is that we're going to be in the presence of the living God. We don't need it. What vision do we need when we're in his presence? It will come to an end. And the sixth one, to anoint the most holy. Literally what that says is the holy of holies. Now, there are some people who think to anoint the most holy meant the anointing of Jesus himself, but because of the the original language, I don't believe that that's what it can be. The holy of holies is actually the church. First in Israel, then to the Gentile. This refers to a, a consecration of the church in the end, this new temple of believers. We are called the temple of God. We are going to be anointed most holy, He's going to glorify the church. Think about that for a minute. He's going to glorify the church. And we're going to be by his side when he reigns. Six goals. Verse 26 says the anointed one will be cut off. This is the crucifixion. And he also tells us that there's going to be an appearance of defeat when he gets cut it off. Understand, cut it? Is that a word? When he gets cut off. Okay? Understand that the disciples thought that he was going to be an earthly king, especially Judas. That's why he was so disillusioned. And Jesus gets crucified, and they're wondering, what 
is going on? I thought he was our king. There's an appearance of defeat on earth. That's the gap in your chart. Satan thinks he's won. But God says that's not the end of the story. And he told Daniel, how many ever thousand years ago? Almost three. It's not the end of the story. There's going to come seven years. The Antichrist will come from Rome, we learn. Come on, there we go. This is the work of the Antichrist. Worship will be forbidden. The temple will be desecrated with something um, that is unbelievably offensive. I, I read a lot of commentaries on that. Nobody knows what it is. But it's, it's going to be so offensive. Whatever the Antichrist puts in the temple in Jerusalem will be so appalling. I think it will make us want to throw up. And wickedness will reach new levels. And I want you to understand this two ways as well. The two uh, levels of wickedness are not only in the acts that are done that you might think are unthinkable, but in the scope that it affects. When I was a kid, about second grade, we moved into town in Allison, Iowa. And I had my little um, bike. It was called a shadow with a banana seat and a sissy bar. I thought I was cool. Okay? And in the afternoon in the summer, I'd say to mom, mom, I'm going to go for a bike ride. And what did she say? She didn't tell me to put a helmet on. She said, be home by supper. She never thought for a minute that I'd be in any danger. And we really weren't in our little town. We'd ride around. We'd go find friends. Um, I'd find a friend, and then we'd go to the construction sites, and we'd get these little glass bottles. Pop used to be in glass bottles. Okay? And I could take five of those to the grocery store and trade them in for a full bottle of pop. So we'd go around and collect our glass bottles. And we didn't have plastic bags then. We had to take our paper grocery bags and put them in and hold them with our... It was a trick. We earned our soda. Okay? And we would do that, and I'd be home by supper, or I wouldn't, and I'd get a spanking. And they never worried. That's changed now. And I want you to think about how you feel, especially your parents, about your kids going off on their own right now. And understand that in the period of the tribulation, it is going to be far worse than that. Wickedness will be so widespread that to find someone who is remotely good is going to be difficult. The scope is huge. That's what's coming. And the temple will be emptied. But the good news at the very end of 27 is that the Antichrist will be destroyed. So Daniel gets the big picture. Now, come on. There we go. A little bit of application on this. No matter what your view of the tribulation is, whether you are a pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib tribulationist, if you don't know what those are, Google them. There's all kinds of information everywhere. You have to deal with a few truths around this passage. Maybe. There we go. Number one, the tribulation is coming, and where are you going to be? If you hold to a pre-trib rapture, you still have to deal with the issue, am I really a follower of Christ or am I just a fan? Have I really entered into a relationship with Jesus? Or am I just playing the game? Do I take seriously the fact that Jesus shed his blood to pay for my sins? And I want to be in a relationship with him. 
Or do I just do this because I have little kids now and we're supposed to go to church? We have to answer that question. Where are you going to be? Are you going to be on the side of Christ or on the side of Satan? The Bible says we're either a friend of God or we're his enemy. There is no in-between. Where are you going to be? Second, come on now. I'm just going to read this. And I want you to really think about it. You have the opportunity to live forever free of transgression and free of sin and wickedness, and to live in the presence of everlasting righteousness. That's what's before you this morning. To experience life with no need for visions and prophecy, because you will be living with God. And set apart once and for all by God, being made holy. That's what's before you this morning. You have a choice to make. What are you waiting for? The reality of what's going to happen is it's going to get bad. It's going to get very, very bad. And God's plan from before the foundation of the earth was to provide a way for us to live forever with him. He's laid it out. He laid it out some 2,500 years ago. He laid it out maybe 10,000 years ago. If you've never said yes to Jesus. And I don't mean just, yes, Jesus, I want you as my Savior. There are plenty of people who want Jesus as their Savior, but the Bible says this. If you notice, it always says Lord and Savior. He must be our Lord first, our ruler, our King. And that means we live life differently. Not by a bunch of rules, But we live with this filter that says, God, what do you think? What should I do? And every time that I have the opportunity to make that decision, and I decide that I have the authority to decide what's right and wrong in my own life, after I've done that, I feel this tall. Because I know that I sinned against God. The Bible says this, His mercies are new every morning. I wake up and I'm like, Lord, let's do it today. (laughs) Help me. This isn't about us being perfect yet. Remember, we've been declared righteous. We're not righteous. But the day's coming. If you are in Christ, that you will be righteous. What are you waiting for? You can receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning. And it's not found in a prayer. I think we pray for us. I think we pray to declare things for us. Not that praying the prayer is bad. But it's in a life that recognizes that he's God and I'm not and I need him because I can't get through this without him. What are you waiting for? Let's pray.
Father, I'm thankful that you have given this vision and answered this prayer and brought this word through Gabriel to Daniel and subsequently to us. One that we know you have a plan that you haven't forgotten, that we are now in the gap. But there is a time that's coming that is going to be relatively short in comparison to history. That seven-year period is over. It's over. And we're either with you or we're against you. And God, I pray this morning that as your Spirit is working in the hearts of the people in this room, that you would hear their prayer and know their heart. Amen. You're dismissed.